1: berry
0: Chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to Take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Welcome to the new books network.
2: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the new books network, the new books and political science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dana Bowen Matthew, who is the author of just health, treating structural racism to heal America. This was published in 2022 by New York University Press. And this is a fascinating and very clear study of the difficulty and the problems with structural inequality, particularly with regard to race and economic inequality and the way this affects individual and whole community health in the United States, as well as some potential solutions. Um, But I'm going to let Dr. Uh, Bowen-Matthew talk to us a little bit about that and the entire book. I'd like to welcome Dana Bowen-Matthew to the show and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this really interesting project. Hello, Dana.
1: Hi, Lily. Thank you so much for calling me, Dana. I appreciate it. I came to the book project uh, as a culmination of my life and work together. Um, One of the things that happens as you've been in the law academy for a long period of time um, is that your multiple selves come together. That self that's the student, the social scientist, that self that's the legal advocate, and that self that's the human person. They all start converging. It's one of the joys of growing older. And this book is a reflection of that. I have been studying the data uh, and the laws that have to do with inequality in the United States of America for over three decades. Um, But I've lived as me for my entire life and I wanted to bring those two pieces together. I wanted to bring them together in a way that's accessible so that the conversation about inequality has a face on it and I decided the face should be my own family.
2: Yeah. and that was so moving and, and, and makes so much sense. As you enter the book, you put this very clear face on the racial and economic inequalities that affect so many Americans and how that has an immediate impact on so much inequality that spans generations and centuries. Um, can you talk perhaps a little bit about your dad? Oh, I... Love to. He um, died at age 49, which
1: is way too early. Um, And if he were unique, I think I'd have a memoir, but I wouldn't have a story that is the American story about structural racism. Because his early death is so tragically common, I feel as though I have a structural story to tell through his story. So the lens is through the fact that when I grew up in the South Bronx, my father and my mother worked themselves literally to early deaths to make sure that I would not end up in the South Bronx. And America demands your life if you are a resident of the South Bronx. You can get out, but you really, really have to die trying. And that's the story I wanted to tell about my parents. So why do I say that? Because all of us that grow up in those segregated neighborhoods have the same system of lack and inequality. We have the same system of inferior schooling, which was my father's number one priority, to get me and my brother to go to a school other than the school that we would have had to go to if we were assigned to our public schools in the South Bronx. So that's one thing, systemic educational inequality. We can fix that though, Lily. The second thing is in order to do it he had to work four jobs. My mother had to work two jobs. Systemic underemployment meant that every morning he would get up and get dressed in a suit and march down to the subway take it to the Bowery Savings Bank and he was a real estate appraiser. He did that because the American dream was made accessible to him a college education at City College of New York. I was in his graduation pictures waving my CCNY flag. That is the American dream. But for a black man, you live that dream at under the minimum wage, I mean, excuse me, under a living wage. And so from nine to five, he worked in order to make half of a living wage and then he'd come home and go to sleep, wake up again, and work the 8 p.m., or excuse me, the midnight to 7 a.m. shift, driving the same subway train that he went to work on in the morning. So that was to make not quite half a living wage, because that didn't make it up, because on the weekends he also had to clean apartments, and he had to be the super of apartments. Putting all of that together He could pay the part of our tuition, my brother and I, that would get us away from the South Bronx and across town to the Riverdale Fieldston School so that I could be on your program today. So systemic underemployment. In order to do that, he had to be systemically underpaid. He also had to be systemically exposed to increased levels of pollution dirty water, dirty air, systemically exposed to inferior food options. If you see a picture of my dad and mom, and I start a lot of presentations, my dad's just a tad bit overweight. So I wrote the book to say, don't think that that was his individual choice, his personal responsibility, his health behavior. That's not the only thing that led to that. It was part of the story, but not the big part. The big part was the structural inequality that disposed him to fast food in bodegas, that disposed him to lack of exercise because we didn't have recreational spaces. And so those systems and structures are embodied in my dad's life. And, and that's why I say in many ways that structural inequality was the biggest contributor to him dying at forty-nine,
2: and and so, and, as you note, this is not indigenous to one person. This is not; it, it is not about an individual's particular choices, uh, because other choices weren't available um, or attainable. Uh, and and so, in in the book, you expand on this in terms of. Uh, various communities in the United States that have more or fewer um, exposure to essentially detrimental health situations.
1: That's right. That's right. And I use a image that the Equal Justice Institute has really coined, and it it has impressed on me uh, what different populations face in the United States, it's not just my father individually, it's not even just African American men or African American families. Um, But the image that the Equal Justice Institute uses is this, if you're walking along the beach and you see a dead fish, you say something's wrong with that fish. If you're walking along the beach and you see a whole school of fish dead, you say something's wrong with the ocean. And in the United States you see schools of the same fish dead on the sores you see the lgbtqia plus community you see the african-american latino-american native american community we saw it and we are still seeing it play out in the awful pandemic we see that disproportionality we see the ableism in the united states so when the same schools of fish are lying dead on the shore, we have to ask ourselves, what's the systemic problem? What's the problem with the ocean that we need to fix, not just with the individual fish or group of fish?
2: And and part of what you talk about in the book that I think you really do an amazing job sort of trying to unpeel components of is that the, the subtitle of the book is about treating structural racism, and racism obviously is a key component of this, but it's also structural inequality period full stop that includes a lot of economic and class inequality in the mix. Can you explain about these sort of onion peels, if you will, um, that are connected but also distinct?
1: Well, in the introduction, you are... Um you were kind to give me, you you noted that I'm a lawyer. And so at the core of the onion, what I wanna to bring to the book is the role of, of, of law, bring to the conversation through the book is the role of law in starting and in stopping, because this is a book about solutions, in starting and stopping the structural inequality that we experience. So here we are, we're a nation, and our founding principle, our document, our reason for being says, all are created equal, And endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Well, the ink wasn't dry before that wasn't true, right? (laughs) Women were not equal. Native Americans were savages. Last time I checked, people were enslaved. (laughs) Yeah, that's true, right? (laughs) Exactly. So uh, there's this legal mandate that we haven't filled. Now we've tried. Oh my God, did we ever try? We tried to fix it in 1868 when we passed the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. We tried to say, you know what, after all, we're not gonna let our government be responsible for inequality. But again, the ink wasn't dry before we decided, no, actually all we mean is civic inequality, we don't mean social inequality. So the onion at its core is legal in its construction. And that's true throughout the book. When I talk about segregation, we had to legally create segregation, right? The way we have inequitable schools is that we institute inequitable funding to the tune of $23 billion separating black and white school districts today. We zone inequality, right? We permit inequality in pollution by law. We permit inequitable wages by law. So the law is at the core of this onion. Then what justifies that legal structure? Well, the next layer is what we believe about people. We affect our laws on different groups because we actually, Do not in our hearts of hearts believe that all groups are the same. We don't even believe all groups deserve what humanity deserves, right? What do you need to be human? Just by way of example, can't live without clean water. Just can't do it. But think about all the many instances in which human beings have been denied clean water in our remembrance, in our lifetime. We're talking about Flint, Michigan, right? We're talking about water that you can smell, It's so putrid that you can see is brown that the car manufacturers on the Flint River decided they could not use to make cars with. But we told the people of Flint, Michigan, 46% of whom are poor and over 50% of whom are African-American, you can drink that water because something about you, whether consciously or unconsciously, and I believe dehumanization, social psychologists tell us, is a subconscious as well as conscious function. It is not because you have to think, the people in Flint, Michigan are not humans, but you do have to think that they're different from you. You don't need the same thing that they need. You may need clear drinking water and clear air to breathe, but they don't. And so that is the second layer of the onion. And then on top of that, are all of what we call the social determinants of health and the social determinants of health in public health parlance are where you live, where you eat, and you play. Everything that has to do with your economic and social setting. Your housing is it clean, decent, safe, and affordable? Your education is it preparing you to function as a part of society equitably? The air you breathe, the water you drink, the food you eat recreational spaces that you occupy even the voice that you have in the polity can you vote the extent to which you are exposed to policing the extent to which you are criminalized in a society the extent to which your mental health is valued all of these where you live where you or eat you play all the social determinants of health and here's the thing lily every single one of them Replicate the dead fish on the sea for the same populations over and over and over again. It's blacks, it's Native Americans, it's LGBTQ plus, it is the poor, it is the women of our society that end up in
2: schools on the beach, and that's what I mean by structural. And and so the 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 sort of umbrella of this inequality that many of us are consciously, consciously aware of, um, all the time that this is, seems to also be an insurmountable problem. Um, that, you know, you, you can't extend the life of African American men because of all of these components of you say, of where you live, eat and play, and how you live life in those areas. Um, that the the person who is an immigrant, who is working as a, a farmhand um, in California, who has a life that's much different than my life as an academic who sits inside uh, under a roof, as a colleague of mine once said, um, and not working in a field. Um, and, and so that these, these components are also part of the quote, American dream. Yeah,
1: they're all part of the American dream and they're distributed inequitably. Um, so can I define the term structural racism? Absolutely. To, to, make, the, uh, to make the point um, a little bit more um, more vivid. In my view, Inequality is structural when it replicates through every institution of society, as I was saying, through the social determinants of health. Inequality is racialized when it is the same racial groups that are having these two characteristics. One, they're being organized hierarchically as less valuable than others in society. Inferior to those who are superior. So we Allocate or ascribe a value to people based on the way that they look. That's the first characteristic of structural racism. The second essential characteristic of structural racism is that once we have that hierarchy, we then do a second thing. We distribute all the resources of society, all the power, all the opportunity, according to that hierarchy, based on how you look, right? So you get better housing as a general rule if you're in the higher, superior, more highly valued group along that spectrum, and you get worse housing as a general proposition if you're not. You get better schools if you're in the group that's highly valued. it's a general proposition, you get inferior schools. Now, there are exceptions, right? And we call that exceptionalism. We had a black president, I went to Harvard, but by and large, the story is my father's story. By and large, the story is that we have not lived out the creed that we founded this nation on that all are endowed with certain inalienable rights by their creator. We don't really think everybody is the same from a creation perspective, right? You don't want me to go down that road right now, but. The point is that structural racism does those two things very efficiently. It hierarchically organizes people, and then it tells you you get resources, power, and opportunity based on that hierarchy.
2: And this is, when we talk about structural racism, it's also distinct from structural inequality. Yes. Because structural inequality doesn't necessarily work on the basis of racial determinants.
1: That's correct. And structural inequality is the place that we start because we have a lot of data. Um, and that's that's a second goal of my book. I wanted to make the story of structural racism accessible to people, um, put a face on it. Uh, the second goal of the book is to really give an evidentiary base for the information about inequality. Um, and then the third was to really centralize law as a Uh, creator of the problem and a solution uh, to the problem. So going to that second goal, inequality in its generic form is really well supported by the social science evidence, right? The evidence that there is a positive relationship, a predictably, consistently replicable, positive and valid positive relationship between how inequitable a society is, that is the difference in income or wealth between the haves and the have-nots, and their social outcomes, whether they fare well or poorly, on any number of social metrics and outcomes, is so predictable that we can organize countries to counties, right? So um, Wilkinson and Pickett is a study that I cite often um, because they took all of the OECD countries and they created an index, and the index was based on 10 metrics. That is, death rates due to four or five diseases, Uh, educational attainment, 10 things that they created into one index, and that one index was plotted against the Gini Index. That is the difference between the top quintile of earners and the bottom quintile of earners. But when you do that, you get a straight line. You can array nations from Japan to the United States, Japan in the lower left-hand corner. The less inequality that you have, that is the nation that has the smallest gap between the highest and lowest earners, the better social and health outcomes you have. That's Japan. And then guess who's up in the far right extreme corner? The greatest inequality, according to the Gini Index that the World Bank calculates, between the top earners and the bottom earners is in the United States of America. And the greatest inequality produces the worst health, and social outcomes, and the United States owns that space. Now we can, like I said, we can replicate that inequality over and over and over again, despite what your race is, despite what your color is, despite what your immigration status is. We can do that over and over again. Elizabeth Bradley does it for states, uh, and many, many, many others do it. When that inequality is racialized, meaning you are always see the same positive relationship by race and ethnicity constantly we call that structural racism structural racism The emphasizes on structural because racism is such a misunderstood word i don't want to presume but if you'll let me i would go to that next what is racism
2: yeah, in context to explain, you've sort of explained structural racism as a framework, a theoretical organizing principle. But to sort of point out to people who are listening, and I know what structural racism is. What is it in in reality? Okay, it's that it's that it's that system
1: that's predictable that organizes people by race and then tells people what they're opportunity is going to look like so much so that i can tell you based on how you look what your life chances are what your health outcomes are you know that saying i think it's common to those of us who are in public health but maybe not across other disciplines i know more about you by your zip code than by your genetic code right and if that is true generally it's even more true by race and ethnicity right i know more about how your health is going to come out once I know your race then I do need to know anything else about you. And it's not because your race is actually genetically different. And this is the thing that's very, very, very important to get across, Lily. A lot of people think, well, why isn't it true that race does predict, for example, your educational attainment? Isn't it true that race does predict where you're going to graduate in the class? It's not racism, it's just looking at the facts. No, my friend, that's not true. Because it's not your race that puts you in the place in the class or in the place on that test. It is the social environment, resources, and opportunities that you get because of your race that end you up at the bottom of the class, that end you up more likely to end up in jail, that end you up, so it's not race. There's nothing intrinsically biologically different about us because of our race. We've already settled that issue, most of us. There are some of us that are still debating that, but most of us have settled that issue. Scientifically, once we uh, mapped the human genome, we knew that 99% of my biological self is the exact same as your biological self, no matter what the skin color is. So we've settled that question, so the difference is social. The difference is what your exposure is, my dad's exposure to education, my dad's ability to earn income, my dad's ability to get an opportunity to live the American dream for his kids. That's the difference. And that's the social structural element of structural racism. Just one more thing. One of the things you hear often from people is, I'm not racist. Um, I'm not, the one that's responsible for enslavement, for Jim Crow laws, why should I pay? It's not me. And what I wanna say, emphasis on the word structural, um, again, what I wanna say about that is, uh, we're not looking to place individual blame on anybody as responsible. That's not the transaction. Uh, The question is, do we have a society that we have structured in a way, organized in a way that always lives up to our American dream of being equal? No. Most of the time lives up to our American goal of all men and women being created equal? No. The majority of the time, some of the time, in fact, most of the time we don't live up to it. And that's not who we want to be. We can do better.
2: And, and as one of the points that you make as you you talk about the American dream, because the, the promise in the Declaration of Independence, as you have articulated, is that all are created equal and they're endowed with certain unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we have this romantic mythological dream, right? That the the country is one of people who have made their way um, and picked themselves up by their bootstraps, of course, um, and have created. Um, and that this is the individual who has the capacity to do this. And as you talk about throughout the book, it's not about the individual fish, right, on the shore, it's about the whole community. Um, and so, part of what we're also discussing in sort of understanding structural racism and structural inequality is how it doesn't map onto the so called American dream.
1: Yeah, it really doesn't map onto the American dream. We have, I love your combination of, um, uh, we have this romantic yet mythological idea of who we are. Both of those are true, it's romantic. Uh, it's an ideal. We want to say it's true, but we've sold ourselves a bill of goods really until we look at the data, and that's what the book tries to do. Um, Some of it is a little bit um, dense, you know, the graphs and the charts, and that's the social scientist in me that wants you to know exactly what the impact of health, uh, on health, educational attainment is, and exactly what number of years it adds to your life if you get a high school education, exactly how many black and brown children are disproportionately expelled or suspended from school so that they don't get a decent education. I want you to know all of that data and I want you to see how often the fish on the sea are Latino, Native American and African American, race is the topic of this book. I want you to see that data over and over and over again so that it's not just me beating my fists or pounding my chest, but it's the numbers that are telling me. but the reason that I also want to defy the dream with data, um, uh, the, 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 the reality of the data uh, shows that we are defying the dream. I also want to bring into the conversation the fact that we did that intentionally. You know, we, we decided what the dream would look like and for whom the dream would work intentionally. So when we talk about solutions, many of us resist the solutions because of the thing that you were talking about, Lily, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, right? Nobody pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. Nobody, nobody, nobody in this United States of America pulled themselves up. Now, one of my favorite books, since we're authors here, I just have to give a shout out to a guy named Ira Katznelson. I don't know Ira, uh, but he wrote a book, When Affirmative Action Was White, that really opened my eyes. You know, there are so many other books, the writing of so many authors, right? The, 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 the Color of Law, obviously, uh, such an important book, Torn Apart by Dorothy Roberts, so many important books. But what I like about Iris' book, When Affirmative Action Was White, is that it reminds us, and so many books do this, reminds us that this reality is a constructed reality. It's a reality that reflects a decision to articulate white supremacy in law. That's what we did. We just decided that that odious concept that white people were to get more of society's resources, options, opportunities, and power because they are superior in some way, wasn't one we're gonna articulate overtly anymore. We don't talk about it overtly anymore, right? But what do you think replacement theory outrage is about? Right? The replacement theory that the gunman in Buffalo was so upset about that has been articulated by so many who are concerned. Remember, I was in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, just after a group of white, angry men and women rampaged through campus yelling, what, Jews will not replace us. Now what they don't talk about very often is that on the downbeat they were saying something else that not many people know unless you watch the video. Into the oven. So it was Jews will not replace us, into the oven. Jews will not replace us, into the oven, right? So replacement theory says I belong on top. And wrenching my primacy, my priority, my superior space, is so offensive to me that I will kill you, put you into the oven because you are not quite human, right? You Jews. Um, uh, you go into the oven. So just let me say my book is about racism, but racism and anti Semitism go hand in hand. Franz Renan taught us that if they come for the Jews, they're coming for you. Indeed. I'm so off topic now. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's
2: fine. <laughs> because, I mean, it's, it's, it again is this sort of envelopment of how do we think about this myth of the American dream that we, you know, see so often in popular culture, in our literature, in, in speeches given by politicians that, you know, this is the United States. This is where anybody can make it. This is, you know, the sort of, Ideal, right? The promise of the pursuit of happiness, um, but as you note that when you start to codify inequality in the law of the land, exactly that. No, <laughs> in fact, some people can make it, but not everyone. Um, and and so. Unfortunately, that is the depressing part of your book,
0: <laughs> but yeah. you have yeah.
2: slightly more hope for us. <laughs> and these days yeah. we need hope. We yeah. need hope, Dana. Yeah. <laughs> got to
1: keep hope alive, right? Yeah. <laughs>
2: um,
1: I am very hopeful. I'm very hopeful. For one thing, there are so many beautiful voices out there. I just wanna give a shout out to one that moves me all the time. I opened the book with it. James Baldwin wrote No Name in the Street in 1972. And he said, if you really wanna know how justice is administered, don't talk to the policemen, don't talk to the lawyers, don't talk to the judges, don't talk to the privileged and the protected, talk to my parents, right? That's why I want you to talk to my mom and dad. I want you to meet them, those who need the law's protection, who need society's protection. So I told you about my dad but the solutions have a lot to do with my mom's life because my mom was resilient in a way that I think our laws could reflect and reform the spaces of inequality that we've been talking about. So my mom grew up in the segregated North in Harlem um, and although she sent us to school an hour and a half away each day so that I could go to Riverdale, Um, her heart remained steadfastly affectionate towards her people. And her black womanhood was something that she reveled in. She had joy in. Um, And it didn't matter who she was with, who she was exposed to. Um, She believed herself to be a beautiful, hopeful, positive, excited, optimistic woman, and that she passed on to us. Some of the way that she did that was that um, she had contact with all kinds of people. So one of the laws that we have to figure out how to reverse is residential segregation laws so that we see each other as human but we don't see each other as human and we don't contact each other because one group is so much better that we have to live next door to them. Or one group is so much smarter that we have to go to the same school as them. But we see one another as human in all walks of life the way my mom lived. So we see principals and PhDs and physicists and engineers and artists and janitors of all races, all walks of life. And we see them as human because our lives cross paths with one another. We desegregate neighborhoods with vouchers. We make housing affordable even as we invest in underinvested neighborhoods. As opposed to gentrification, we have a program of reinvestment that doesn't displace people so that we can begin to humanize the fact that you go to the grocery store and you pick up apples just like I go to the grocery store, and you are afraid for your 16 year old to go out and drive that car the first time just like, I'm afraid. But boy, oh boy, it's a different experience if your 16 year old gets stopped by the police and my 16 year old goes, tell me about that experience so that it's not about blue lives mattering or all lives mattering. It's about the fact that we know each other as human beings, the same pains, the same aches, the same problems in life. Residential segregation should be the first target, I think for our long-term solutions, our shorter-term solutions. We can't wait for the society that we built around segregation to desegregate before we pay a living wage, before we repair reparations, economic discrimination that has been done for centuries. We can't wait to make educational opportunity equal so that black and white children get disciplined for the same behavior and get treated with mental health and behavioral health and wellness treatment at the same rate. We can't wait for residential segregation to go away before we stop locating highways that white neighborhoods won't permit to be built in black and brown neighborhoods, before we stop locating toxic waste transfer stations in the South Bronx where I grew up, but not in Riverdale because those fumes, those toxins are okay for the black and brown people to breathe. So yes, it's a large network of social determinants of health that are inequitably distributed. And some people might look at it and go, oh my God, that's such a big problem, where do I start? I look at it and I say, start anywhere. You can start at your PTA. If you're a mom or a dad and you see that all the kids in the IB and the AP program in your school are white, you can say, you know what, the buck stops with me. I'm gonna challenge that and ask what's wrong with the ocean that all the fish are white that are getting into this AP course that are getting college preparate courses. Or you can start if you're a CEO of a corporation and say, you know what, the differential between what I make and the guy on the lowest end of the road, it's too much. I'm not gonna make him work two jobs in order to make a living wage. I think he needs time with his family, just like I need time with my family. And I'm gonna treat him like a human, just like I get treated like a human. I'm gonna pay a living wage. You can start anywhere, and everybody has a responsibility to do
2: something. And in terms of the outcome from some of these shifts, be they big or small, changing residential segregation laws or going to the PTA meeting and asking about how students are essentially tracked or funneled into um, advanced classes or AP classes or not. Um, These are, again, as you say, start anywhere. Um, But how do we move it? I mean, this seems to also be the debate right now with regard to gun violence.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, The way we move it, in my opinion, is that we start where the source of the problem was. We start by changing our laws. We start by changing our lawmakers. We pick lawmakers that believe in equality. We pick lawmakers that take seriously the responsibility that health is the canary in the gold mine. The only reason I pick health is because it can tell us how just or unjust our society is. So the name of the book is Just Health for a reason. I think Just Health is a society in which everyone has an equal opportunity to be healthy. and The laws make sure of that. Everybody has an equal opportunity to be healthy. That's all we're looking for is an equal opportunity to be healthy. And so we start with laws that have to do with funding schools. We start with laws that have to do with making it possible for students to get an education without going into debt that will last them the rest of their lives. We start with laws that make it possible to move, like I said, sources of pollution equitably around the country. There are all kinds of laws from little local ones to big ones now, there are people who have a different social agenda, and they get this already. They get this already. They don't want you to read what they call critical race theory, which, by the way, has nothing to do with critical race theory, but they don't want you to read critical race theory, and so where do they go? They go make a law that says, you can't teach my student that. Those of us that are passionate about structural racism, eradicating structural inequality, we need to go find people who will make laws about real things that matter.
2: And and not fake things that don't actually right. matter. <laughs> right. Um, so may I ask you, Dana, since you have written this engaging and in a certain sense, bringing people out into political action, what are you working on now?
1: Well, um, I have the privilege of being the dean of George Washington University Law School, which is like, woo. <laughs> <laughs> it's it it's it's such a joy. It's such an exciting thing. But I'm building this um, uh, new institute called the Equity Institute uh, for the research of socioeconomic and racial equality in the United States and the world. Um, and we're doing that um, by putting together all race and inequality scholars at the GW campus in a way that is what we call community engaged. And by community engaged. Uh, We're asking researchers to research questions that communities need answered in order to address racism. Uh, Not the issues that are going to get you promoted or get your next book out or get you tenured, but what are the questions that communities need answered? And some of the things that communities need answered right now is how do we get our health outcomes equalized when they are obstructed by law? That sounds like a, a, a weird question. A lot of the questions that we have communities asking us now are really different from the questions that we as researchers. What is the connection between health outcomes and law? Well, for somebody who lives in a dilapidated apartment whose building is not up to code, a lot. For somebody who's getting systematically overcharged by rent um, and gouged for an under uh, uninhabitable apartment, a lot, my health is informed uh, by the law. Um, and so we're solving some of those problems and we're researching, um, how to do a better job of them in the equity Institute. So my project is, is doing research in a community engaged way with other race scholars at GW.
2: Cool. Um, whenever the next book comes out, whatever it is, I hope you will come on the new books in political science podcast and talk to me about it. Um, whether it's advocacy and revolutions or it's, you know, a little bit drier law school stuff. I don't care. (laughs) All right. You win that round. (laughs) I've read my share of law review articles. I know. you writing, Lily. I know you're in the middle of a book, too. Um, I just have a... I, I will have a book, an edited volume, coming out in November on the politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that I have edited Uh-oh. with Nick Carnes from Duke University, who is a scholar of inequality, um, when he's not writing about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Well, I'm going
1: to read it because my, <laughs> my family's a big Marvel fan. I'm
2: excited. I'm hoping it will make lots and lots of Christmas and Hanukkah and other presence because of its timing.
1: (laughs) Well, I congratulate you, and I'm so grateful for having the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It
2: was my pleasure to host you, Dana Bowen-Matthew, author of Just Health, Treating Structural Racism to Heal America, published by New York University Press. I assume one can purchase it at the New York University Press website. Yes,
1: you can. You absolutely can. And wherever your local bookstores are it's on the shelves there too.
2: Great. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Lily. It has been bye-bye now.